That announcement's a great example of when the church really gets it and understands that when we sacrifice and come together and serve, we can really do big things in our community. And that's true for the churches of Columbia and it's true for our church here. It's what God intended. And it's not entirely unrelated to our passage today in starting in Ephesians 5. We're doing a kind of Bible study sermon series. We gave a bunch of study guides to Ephesians to our congregation, and people are kind of studying the passage the week before the sermon, and then we come here and talk about it. You don't have to have done it to understand the sermon at all, but what people who have done it understand that there's two um, difficult passages, parts of this section. Uh, One is, wives, be submissive to your husbands, and the other is, slaves, obey your masters. So we're going to have some fun today. Uh, If you've noticed that Keith and I usually preach every other week, but when Keith saw the preaching schedule, he all of a sudden (laughs) remembered he's going to be out of town this weekend. So uh, we may want to go over and see if he's watching from home. Uh, Just hope this works out okay. But... uh, but I, I, in all seriousness, you know, that does seem really tone deaf when you read it, and it kind of it can be confusing, and we have to understand the whole passage to understand any verse in the passage. That's, actually, that's true for the whole Bible. You have to understand the whole Bible. The whole Bible is the context of any single verse, and that's particularly true when you come to a passage. The whole, the whole thing is the context, and I think if we understand the whole point, the whole context, it'd be a little, it won't seem so tone deaf. In fact, I think quite the opposite. It'd be kind of empowering to us if we really get it. So we're going to fly at 30,000 feet. We're not going to get detailed. We're going to cover those two things mostly, mainly, and I want to start with the first found in Ephesians 5:22. And he's, he's going through what the Apostle Paul's doing is now he's been saying all these things about what we have, who we are in Christ, and then how do we walk as children of light. And now here toward the end of the letter, he's going to get very specific with different people in the church. And so he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. He goes on, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You know, that's good enough. Let's just close in prayer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that right away when we see in everything, it, it's a bit of a, you know, we catch it. But it should also, we should know right away, just by the context of the sentences we just read, the verses we just read, we already know that when he says in everything, that's not making an absolute statement. He's giving a principle. Because he said, as to the Lord, in the verse, right, we saw it, submit to your husband, as to the Lord. And so what he's saying is, a Christian wife's central obedience is to Christ, And so she should never submit to her husband in anything that would be contrary to her obedience to Christ and Jesus' teachings in the Scripture. What Paul's doing is giving a general principle, and he's not giving any specifics. And so he's saying, you work it out yourself according to your personality, according to your marriage, according to your circumstances, and it's going to be different for different people. But here's the principle. As you draw near to Christ as a humble servant, 
so too draw near to your husband as a humble servant. That's the principle. And it's not a weird principle because we hear that teaching all the time in the Bible. Jesus says, I came not to, to, to be served, but to serve. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. This is just Christianity 101 applied to the wife in the relationship of her marriage. That was three verses to the wife. Now Paul's getting ready to write eight verses to the husband. So let's do that. Husbands in 25, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now he's talking here about hearing the gospel and becoming cleansed through the gospel. And he says, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, the whole purpose of God becoming human in the person of Jesus and living a life as a servant and dying on the cross, giving himself is because he wanted to make his people radiant and beautiful and glorious. That's the way Christ loves. That's how Christ loved. And so in this same way, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now, he's using this metaphor of a head and body. He's talking here about oneness with Christ, oneness in marriage. So he, so, so he goes to the verse that talks about that in the second page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it goes and he quotes it. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, one body. He's kind of going with that image and using this verse to do it. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, which kind of seems weird unless you, he sounded like he was talking about marriage to me, but the way you, we understand what he's doing here is he's saying that the marriage relationship is telling a bigger story that's a profound mystery. The marriage relationship is telling the ultimate marriage story, and that is Christ becoming one with his people. And so you go to the second to last chapter of the Bible, and when it describes Jesus coming back and bringing restoration and causing his people to be raised in glory and radiance and beauty, it's described as a marriage, the bride and the groom. That's the ultimate marriage. This is all imagery. It's all an illustration. And so Paul's saying even our relationships with one another is an illustration, a living illustration of a profound mystery that's the bigger story. Ultimately, whether you're single or whether you're married, we're all living for the true ultimate marriage. And that's with Christ and becoming one and being a radiant, beautiful, glorious church. That's the whole story. That's the bigger story that every other smaller relationship and every other smaller story in our life is part of. But here's the thing. Talking about headship and all this kind of stuff, the Greco-Roman world was not an egalitarian paradise. Paul did not need to say anything to a husband about being the head of his home. It was an unbelievably abused situation in the Roman Empire. What Paul's doing is redefining headship. 
So it's more radical than you may think. He's redefining headship, not as being this always in charge, bossy, superior, ordering everybody around. Everybody did that headship. He doesn't have to command that. That's easy. He's redefining it away from that to a whole new definition of headship, and that is being the one to take responsibility to sacrifice and serve and love humbly by giving of himself in in order for the radiance and beauty and glory of the body, which is his wife and his family. I mean, his wife is the body and the well-being of the whole household. He's redefining headship in this way. A husband ought to love his wife. So, so Rebecca McLaughlin, who preached here, I don't know, a couple years ago, right before COVID, in like October, uh, before COVID, she's really good, and she's recently, recently written a book called The Secular Creed, and I, she had a little, bit, little ditty in there that relates to this passage that I thought it would be good for us to read. She says this, it is like reading the first words of a note that says, I cannot bear you, and tearing it up before seeing the rest of the sentence being so far away. When I first read Paul's instructions to wives, I was appalled. Wives, submit, your, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. For some time, I held this fragment of the letter in my hands, turning it over and over, shocked by its misogynistic force. But then I started to piece it together with what came next. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? By dying for her, by offering himself naked and bleeding on a Roman cross. Like Christ and the church, it's love built on sacrifice. This is not just about marriage. Marriage is just another relationship that's important that the gospel is being applied to in this passage. But this is every relationship. We looked at it in our singing when we looked at Philippians 2, where Paul says, you, humble yourself, don't be proud, humble yourself, and look out for the interests of others as more important than your own. Have the same attitude that Jesus had, who, being God, emptied himself and became nothing, and became a servant, and became obedient even to the cross, even to die on the cross. And so God highly exalted him, and it's the same with you. If you humble yourself, this is the whole point of relationships. Humble yourself. Be a servant. Have this attitude that Christ has. This is Christianity 101. It's not just to wives. It's to everyone. But it's applied in the marriage relationship this way, and specifically for the husband, it's applied as sacrificing and giving and humbling himself just as Christ did for the church. So before any of this, The first before any of this is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everybody's commanded to do this. In all of our relationships, we're commanded to submit to one another, husband and wife, or whether it's in the church, or whatever, whatever it is. This is how Christians live. We live, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is how Christianity 101 works. Not just for the wife and not just for the husband, but for everybody. But here's the thing. 
is that in talking to Christians about submitting yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ, again, that's a principle. It's not an absolute. I mean, we're not called to submit to somebody who's telling us to do something that's against Christ. We're not called to submit to somebody who's bringing destruction in other people's lives. And that's not, it's not an absolute statement. These are principles. And we have to work out the specifics. And it's going to look different in different relationships. And we're all going to fall short. Welcome to the Christianity 101 again, too. We're all going to fall short, but this is the ideal. This is the goal. This is what we're called to. And so Paul talks to children. He says to children, obey your parents, because that's a commandment that it says it will go well with you if you do. He talks to fathers, and he says, don't exasperate your children, but make the teaching of the Lord attractive. And then he talks to slaves in chapter 6, verse 5, and here's, I think, what happened. Imagine yourself in the congregation, and a large part of the Christian church in the first century were slaves. A large percentage of the population in the church were slaves. Jesus, the gospel, the whole message really appealed to slaves. So they were a big part of the church. And you're sitting in church and you're hearing all these instructions to family members, wives, husbands, children, fathers, and you've got your eyes down and you're listening to the reading of this text and all of a sudden you hear slaves and your eyes come up because for the first time in this culture, somebody has actually spoken to you and addressed you as a member of the family and is important and as part of the congregation. And Paul says this, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And he said, we've seen that same pattern, right? Just as you're serving Christ, just as you're drawing near to Christ, just as you would obey Christ, obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, just like we all are, just like everybody is. And he says, doing the will of God from your heart, so serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. That's who you're really serving. That's who we're slaves of, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. It's just the same principle for everybody. And then he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threat... No, wait a minute. What? Treat your slaves in the same way. What did Paul just say? He said, humble yourselves, live in reverence and respect, and serve people, because in serving them and you're serving your master in heaven, masters, you treat your slaves in the same way? See, I think Paul just slipped something by that's going to undermine slavery, which it did. Do not threaten them, since you know that it is he who is both their master and yours. See, you're not really a master. You're a servant. Well, you're an earthly master. Okay, we'll go with that for now. But your real master is their master and yours. You're a slave too, who's in heaven, and there is no favoritism 
with him. Now, we do have to ask the question, did Paul think slavery was okay? I mean, he kind of treats it as legit, even though he says some radical reordering. He does treat slavery as kind of part of the system. And we know from history that white slave owners in the United States used these verses to justify slavery. We know that's true. Are they right? Were they right to do so? In the Roman world, anywhere from 10, they say, historians say anywhere from 10 to 20% of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It's a lot. And the way you became a slave in the Roman world that Paul's writing in is you might be born to slaves and so born into slavery, or you might be found abandoned as a child and so sold into slavery, or you might be bought from parents who, for whatever reason, wanted to get money for selling their kids into slavery, or you may have been conquered in a war by the Roman Empire, and instead of being killed, you were taken as a slave and brought back to be a slave in Rome, or you may have been enslaved because you were in debt, and so to be, a, to be the only way out of debt was to become a slave. Or you might have been enslaved as a punishment for a crime that you committed. Or you might have been enslaved because of the slave trade. You've been kidnapped, and it could happen inside the Roman Empire, but usually on the frontiers of the Roman Empire in Ireland, Scotland, Eastern Europe, Arabia, Africa, Outside the frontiers of the Roman Empire, there was a slave trade, and people could be kidnapped and sold to the slave trade and brought back to Rome as slaves. The pagan temples all throughout the Roman Empire served as slave markets. And on the British Museum website, they specifically mentioned Ephesus. We're reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians. They specifically mentioned Ephesus as a central hub of the Roman slave trade. So Paul's writing to people who are in the very, very heart of this whole thing. And here's the thing, is that, 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 that in, 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 you can, if you go to the British Museum website, you can see that it was kind of a brutal thing. This is a, a tag that a slave wore. They found it in you know, archaeological digs. There'd be a metal collar around a slave's neck that he couldn't get off or she couldn't get off. And there was this tag attached to it. And this tag says, hold me lest I flee and return me to my master Viventius on the estate of Callistus. We know from the Bible, from the Old Testament, that slavery was a very real practice in Middle Eastern cultures and African cultures, Egyptian cultures, well before the Roman Empire. In fact, we just know from history that every single society in every single century, everywhere in the world, practiced slavery to some degree. It was always a part of the world. So what Paul is trying to do, this is the first century of Christianity. This is the first generation Christians. He's trying to help people live out the gospel within a world of slavery that nobody could ever imagine would be any different. But we do know that Paul saw the slave trade 
as an incredible evil. We know that because he says it. In 1 Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to a person who was a pastor, and this is kind of a personal letter, although it became obviously public. Here we are reading it. But he's, he's, living, he's listing a, a list of sins that are particularly uh, rebellious against God in their day, in their culture. And so he lists it. He says, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, slave traders, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. See, to Paul, slave trading was always an egregious evil that never conformed with the gospel, ever, never. When you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature, it's all symbolic, but you have this symbolic city called Babylon. And Babylon represents any and every kingdom that is energized by forces of darkness that spread their corruption throughout the earth, their idolatries, their adulteries, it says. And it's describing a ship, a cargo ship, that's going to Babylon. And it excuse me, describes the cargo of the ship And the very last thing mentioned, mentioned, I think, poetically for emphasis, is this. And human beings being sold as slaves. And human beings being sold as slaves is supposed to make us go, yeah, Babylon really is evil. And their corruption and their cargo even had human beings sold as slaves. That was nothing, nothing new at the time that was written. It was trying to make a theological point of how evil is spread throughout the world. See, the Bible was way ahead of its time in condemning slavery, specifically the slave trade. So here's, I think, the ironic thing is that when we come to this passage in Ephesians and we cringe at what we read, slaves obey your masters, masters be good to your slaves, and we cringe at that, the only reason why we're cringing at that is because we're living now on this side of history that condemns slavery because people are being, people are human beings, and that whole enlightenment began first with the Bible. There was nobody else. There's no other ancient document that we know of that was condemning slavery except the Bible. And there was nobody else condemning slavery except those who were leaders in the church after the New Testament was written. So again, whatever enlightenment we have that makes us cringe at this passage in Ephesians, we're enlightened because the Bible was the first to condemn it because of the teachings of Jesus. And because of the teachings of the whole Bible. Uh, I read a book called Reading Reading While Black by Esau McCauley. He's also a columnist for the New York Times. If I could ever have assigned reading as a pastor for our church, this would be a book I would assign. It's such a great book. But I, I remembered this as I was preparing this sermon. I remembered this part that I read in the book about a year ago. And he says, does the Bible sanction what happened to black bodies on this continent? On the first read... The Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. He admits that. And then he says, and yet, and this is the crucial part, the Bible says more than enough. The story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. He admits that. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative 
The core theological principles and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. The Bible, taken in its entirety, remember that's always the context of any one verse, remains a light in a dark and broken world. It is their fault that slave masters took so long to walk out of the darkness and into the light. Let me read it one more time. The Bible, taken in its entirety, remains a light in a dark and broken world. It is their fault that slave masters took so long to walk out of the darkness and into the light. He's exactly right. The narrative of the Bible is that the God that created this entire universe emptied himself, humbled himself, born into poverty, became a human, lived a life of suffering, became a servant to others, suffered and died on the cross to make his people able to be glorious and radiant in the final marriage of the kingdom of God. That is the whole narrative of the Bible. If you want to live like Jesus, you got to live inside that narrative. This was countercultural in Paul's day, and it's countercultural today. But what the apostle wrote over a decade before he wrote Ephesians, in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 26, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed. You're part of Abraham's descendants. You're part of Abraham's family. You're the recipient of all the Old Testament promises to Abraham and his descendants. And heirs, those who are going to inherit, heirs according to the promise. This is the narrative of the Bible. We've been seeing Paul say this all the way through Ephesians, talking about us being heirs of this inheritance of the kingdom of God. And that defines every relationship we have, and it makes the risk-taking of serving and dying to ourselves make every sense in the world to us, when it otherwise wouldn't make any sense at all. When I was in college, I had a good friend that had one arm. And he and I were driving one night, late at night. It was kind of raining, and you can't can't see very well at night. We're driving on a road, a two-lane road, and a car coming past us, oncoming car coming past us, right as it passed us, hit a telephone pole and spun out and went into flames. I pull over. My friend with one arm, he's in the passenger seat. He opens the door before the car's even stopped. He sprints toward the car. He opens the door. The woman's unconscious. He unbuckles her belt. He's reaching in. I hesitated. Because I'd seen movies where I saw this car with the fire underneath the gas tank. I'd seen movies where the car blows up. And it looked like to me that's getting ready to happen at any moment. And I hesitated. He didn't hesitate. With one arm, unbuckles, reaches his right arm. He had one arm, reaches it in, starts to pull her out. She's unconscious. She can't help. And I realize he can't quite get her out with one arm, and so I, okay. And I run up, and I help, and I, we both grab her, and we pull her out and bring her safely away from the car. She's still unconscious. We look back at the car, and the inside was completely incinerated with flames. 
she would have died. I, you know, I think about that a lot. I thought about it this week. In hindsight, I know the car didn't blow up. The gas tank never blew up. But I know the inside incinerated the hole in, the fire incinerated the hole inside and she would have died. If I could go back and know what I know now with the benefit of hindsight, I would have sprinted toward that car. I know it's not going to blow up, but I know the inside's going to be incinerated. And I would, have incinerated, I would have just sprinted, opened the door, and saved her life without any hesitation at all because I know how it all turns out. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. Here's how it turns out. You're heirs of God's promise. Jesus has already come. God became human. Jesus died, and he died so that he could make you holy and radiant and bright with glory. You're heirs of God's kingdom. We already know the bigger story. There's going to be this wedding. There's going to be this marriage, and we're going to be this beautiful bride married to the creator of the universe. That's the only, def- that's the only example the Bible can give somehow to illustrate the oneness and the closeness we're going to have with the God who created us and created the universe. We already know from hindsight how it all turns out. And so in every relationship we have, the ones that challenge our pride, the ones that are hard, the ones that cause us to sacrifice, in every relationship we have, whether we're husband or wife or single or whether whatever it is we work at work or wherever it is in the church, in every relationship we have, we already have the benefit of hindsight. We know how it turns out. And this is Christianity 101. He humbled himself even to the death on the cross and was exalted. And that's our narrative. So we can serve. We can sacrifice. We can give without risk because it's not about this. It's about this. And that's what we're living for. Amen.